May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to guess that there are at least a few people here who have been following the news coverage of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Whatever one might think about monarchy or about the effects of empire, we have watched as a stunned United Kingdom comes to grips with the loss of a monarch a monarch who has been a near constant presence for 70 years, one who only two days prior to her death appeared before cameras to greet the new prime minister. She was frail and using a cane, but she looked to be in decent shape, especially considering her 96 years of age. And then she was gone, just like that like a breath exhaled into the ether. Now all her subjects knew that she would not and could not live forever. They knew that as my grandmother used to say, the young may die, but the old must die. And yet this certain knowledge of the natural order of things did not protect them from the acute ache of grief. Here in this country, we marked on Sunday the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, attacks that brutally snatched the life out of thousands of people. They went to work or got on a plane that morning, never suspecting what awaited them. And tragically, many of their deaths were captured on live national television. 21 years have not dulled the memories of those of us who were old enough to experience 9-11, either up close or from a distance. And for those whose loved ones were killed, no memorial, no service, no amount of therapy or pastoral care will ever fill that wretched hole produced by the senseless murder of a beloved family member or friend. My friends, these events and the deaths every day that never make the news events the sobering reality of death. St. Paul asked the question later on in this chapter of the first letter of the Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Well, Brother Paul, with all due respect, it certainly seems sometimes like sin and death have the upper hand. I look around this world and I see bodies strewn all over the place. Bodies strewn around by pandemic, by climate catastrophe, and by senseless wars. Perhaps there were some believers in the community at Corinth who felt similarly. You know, with these letters, we are always kind of listening to a one-sided conversation. So we can make some inferences, but we, and strong inferences, but we don't really get the full perspective of those that St. Paul is talking to. In this instance, we find Paul spending considerable time speaking to those in the community who are saying 
that there is no resurrection of the dead. So perhaps there were some folks there at the church in Corinth who thought to themselves, guess what, Paul? It looks to me like death has won. I miss mama so very much, or I miss daddy so very much, or I miss my dear friend so much, or I'm grieving the tragic loss of multiple people from a war or from illness. I've lived with this for a long time. This grief has substance and depth to it, and I just find it hard to believe that anybody has the power to make this go away. I find it hard to imagine a circumstance where this grief might be turned into the victory of resurrected life. Or maybe the resurrection of the dead was hard to believe simply because it falls so outside the realm of ordinary human experience. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad that in this age, I've never seen anybody resurrected from the dead. I don't quite know what I would do with myself in such a situation. I'd honestly just prefer that they didn't have to die in the first place. But my point is this, the dead coming back to life is simply not something that most of us witness in our life's journey. For most of us, death appears to have a finality to it that is unmistakable and irreversible. It appears that the Corinthian Christians could accept, actually, the extraordinary resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's later arguments in this chapter are premised on the assumption that they actually do believe in that. But a resurrection that would happen en masse was, it seems, a bridge entirely too far. So perhaps they, like us, had questions that wrestle both with the external reality of death and the internal response to this reality. Do we dare believe that something so out of the ordinary might be in store for us and for our loved ones at the end of the age? Do we dare believe that the sobering reality of death that we know so well can be wiped away from the human condition? And I would add that many today wrestle with the idea of the resurrection of Jesus himself. St. Paul steps into this moment among those early Corinthian Christians, not initially anyway with an argument explaining the resurrection, but instead with a testimony, a proclamation both about the tradition that he has received and proclaimed, and also about his own encounter with the risen Christ. He comes to them and to us with a story, a narrative that should define our past, present, and future as Christians. He writes, now I should remind you of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you. For I hand it on to you as of first importance that what, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And as this chapter of 1 Corinthians continues, Paul explains the significance of this testimony. This Christian story 
means that we serve a God who will not allow sin and death to have the last word. We serve a God whose risenness, if you will, means that God is already acting on our behalf, already working to turn the hierarchies of this world upside down so that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And a woman who cleans Jesus' feet with her hair will be reversed with a highfalutin host. A God who is already working, as the saying goes in the black community, to make a way out of no way. One who makes the seemingly impossible possible, not only in the grand scheme of sin and death and the grave, but also in the minutia and the tedium of everyday life. This is a testimony, as Paul says, of first importance. This is our defining story, and we need to stick to it. For some of us, sticking to the story may be a bit harder than it was for the original audience of this letter. They had this eloquent, passionate man in the flesh and blood vouching for these events and saying that all of these other folks, 500, could directly vouch for them too. Many of us, on the other hand, have a scientific worldview that views with skepticism extraordinary claims that cannot be verified with immediate empirical evidence. But let us not forget that the hope provided by our story empowers us to be the people that God has called us to be and to do the work that God has given us to do in this hurting and wounded world. It is this story that gives us the power to believe that the love of God is transforming lives right here and right now. Now, even as I make this statement, I must also say that we would do well to remember the notes of caution offered by the scholarship of the ethicist Miguel A. Delatorre in his 2017 book, Embracing Hopelessness. He essentially makes the case, and I'm, this is Joe Thompson's thumbnail sketch of, uh, of the book, so with apologies to Professor Delatorre, but he essentially makes the case that hope is overrated. Or perhaps more to the point, he suggests that people suggest that hope has been abused by the privileged who use it as an excuse to abdicate responsibility to change the socioeconomic structures that daily oppress billions. And now I'm quoting. The book explores faith-based responses to unending injustices by embracing the reality of hopelessness. To embrace hopelessness is to distance oneself from middle-class privilege that assumes all is going to work out in the end. By upsetting the norm, an opportunity arises that can lead us to a more just situation, although such acts of defiance usually lead to crucifixion. Hopelessness is what leads to radical liberative praxis. It seems very clear to me that a facile, all is going to work out in the end version of hope is not what St. Paul had in mind, though it would be easy enough to misinterpret it in that way. His articulation of hope was not about giving privileged people an excuse to disengage from facing the realities of, for example, extreme poverty or violent conflict. 
It was not an excuse to dismiss the distress of the dispossessed by saying, you'll understand it better by and by, while I meanwhile maintain distance from you and closeness to my 401k or my 403b. Read on a bit further in today's chapter of 1 Corinthians. It becomes increasingly clear that Paul's version of hope coming out of our shared Christian story leads to a profound reshaping and renewal of life that is deeply engaged with and rooted in the everyday realities of the human condition. And this is why it seems to me St. Paul does not come down any harder than he does on those Corinthians or on us. And we know he could come down hard on people at times. You see, I think Paul understood why the resurrection of the dead might be difficult for many to swallow. Paul understood that death is indeed a powerful foe. He's not asking us to be something other than the human beings that we are, with all the sorrows and doubts and fears and pains that we bear. The good news that he proclaims is intended not to give us a means to anesthetize the reality and suffering, reality of suffering and grief, but his proclamation is instead a call for us to let our very lives bear witness to the life-giving, resurrecting love of God, even in the face of sin and death. As he says in the last verse of this chapter, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so, it falls to us to hand on to others as of first importance what we in turn have received. This means telling the story in our own way, for our own day, grounded in our own experience of the risen Christ. But although Paul talks quite a bit about belief in the story, this isn't simply a matter of voicing our assent to a proposition. This is just as much about how we lead our lives. And so handing on the proclamation also means humbly seeking God's guidance to make life choices that point in the direction of resurrection on our own behalf and on the behalf of others. Who can we be and what can we do to be a balm on the wounds of others and in fact on our own wounds and the particularity of our own context? And just as important, who can we be and what can we do to prevent the powers and principalities and socioeconomic structures of this age from inflicting those wounds in the first place? With God's help, our choices can bear witness to the fact that the resurrected Christ really is alive, really is taking away the sting of death, and thanks be to God, giving us the victory.
As we gather here at Virginia Theological Seminary from around the globe, seeking God's reign in this world, let us pray, saying, in the spirit we plead, hear us, O God. O God, we give thanks for the many blessings of this life, especially for the beauty of all creation. In the spirit we plead, hear us, O God. O God, may your dominion grasp us and ravish the hearts of all who claim Christ as Lord, especially the Diocese of Port Moresby, the Anglican Church of Papua New Guinea, for the Episcopal Divinity School at Union, and for the Reformed Theological Seminary, D.C.